0: Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. This is Lenny Goldberg. Thanks for joining me. Let's get right into it. You know, people are very disappointed in a government that was supposed to be right-wing and nationalist. But it's kind of acting like every other government does. You have Jewish blood that's cheaper than it's ever been before. We got Netanyahu who agrees to pause the settlement construction. He's going to freeze settlement construction. And he's also going to freeze the demolition of these illegal Arab homes that the Supreme Court said a long time ago they're supposed to be demolished because Bibi is accepting the uh, Biden administration's request to pause the demolition of these illegal Arab homes and, of course, to freeze Judea and Samaria construction. I'm so glad we have a right-wing government. Because, you see, Bibi was always a bluffer. See, now, finally, we can see Bibi's true colors. He comes across to the world as a hardliner, a nationalist, right-wing guy. And that's only because he's always surrounded by leftists. When he had a government with Sippy Livni in there or Lapide and those kind of people, sure, compared to them, he seems like a right-winger. And they're holding him back. He wants to do more. what can he do? His hands are tied. He's got those left-wingers in his coalition. But now, you see, he's got no excuses. He's the guy holding it back. So now we've called his bluff. He's a politician, never really was a hardliner. He's the type of guy who really cares what the world thinks more than anybody else. Because that's his background too. In those early years as he served as an ambassador and he sees the world, the UN, And he's there and all the nations are against Israel and the U.S. is for Israel. And he's watching this. He's conditioned from early on to take into account all the time what the world is going to say, especially what America is going to say. So, yeah, he comes across as a hardliner nationalist because he's a great speaker. He can make a great speech. He can write a great book about that. But if you look at his actions, he's anything but. This is a man released thousands of Arab prisoners as a gesture to John Kerry. He's the one who forged ahead with the Y agreement after the Oslo Accords to continue the withdrawals. So just because the world looks at him as a hardline right winger nationalist, that doesn't mean that's what he is. And maybe Hashem put him in his position because he is a great speaker and he does express the right views to the world. And maybe Hashem wants a little kiddish Hashem out there that at least on the face of it to the outside world, they see a strong leader, and it's a kiddush Hashem, because he does project to the world out there Jewish strength and Jewish pride. But for us in the know, who live it every day, who on our flesh have to carry the burden of his policies, he's no different than anybody else. What's the difference if Gantz freezes settlement building and Bibi does it? If Bibi does it, it's totally okay. And this really reminds me of an article that Rabbi Kahana wrote back in the '80s called "Oylem Goylem." Oylem, from the word olam, which means world, goylem is like a big stiff that can't think on his own. So Oylem goylem means that the Jewish world is a goylem. So I'm going to read some of this. I think you'll see the parallels for today. When Alexander Hamilton said in his day that the masses are asses, that was just a mere echo of a famous Yiddish folk saying, the oylem is a goylem. What's a golem? The golem, one recalls, is that brutish being, incapable of independent thought and key to the will of its master. Alas, the more things change, the less anything in the Jewish world does. The Jewish audience remains a golem. I speak of the incredible willingness of the Jew to want to believe any lie, fraud, and cynical manipulation, as long as that allows him to preserve his illusions of heroes, I speak of the almost absolute ability of politicians to do and say anything in the knowledge that their idolatrous following will see only divinity and truth in them. Despite the fact that if the same act would be done by a politician they despise, they'd be crying for the traitor's scalp. And I write this as the cult of Ariel Sharon spreads among the oilim that is a goylem, the masses of asses. And by the way, the rabbi wrote this way before Ariel Sharon evacuated Gush Katif but let's go on in the article. There is an apparent need on the part of human beings and certainly Jews for a hero. There is a need for man to worship. Alas, God lacking enough charisma for the modern Jew, he seeks something more exciting. And in every decade, there is someone else to worship, some other God with feet and mind and soul of clay. In the past, it was Moshe Dayan, he of the one eye and the lion heart of Judah. Jews of the exile, humiliated for two millennia, ached for a hero, and here was the Jewish Samson who smote the Gentiles and gave every Jew in Levittown pride and self-respect. Little matter that Moshe Dayan was a man of tiny faith and immense fear of the Gentiles, who along with Golda Meir, yet another Jewish winner, refused to allow the Israeli army to strike a preventive blow a day before they knew the Yom Kippur War was to begin out of fear of American reaction. No less than 4,000 Jewish boys fell because of that criminal decision by Moshe Dayan. Indeed, an Oilim goylem. And Golda, the architect of the murder of 4,000 Jewish soldiers because of fear of the world. The architect, too, of that saying that will surely enter the hall of fame of insanity. As she declared, I can forgive the Arabs for having killed our soldiers, but I can never forgive them for making us kill theirs. And yet, this person still remains, in the eyes of millions, the only gever in the Israeli cabinet, the only man in the Israeli cabinet. And then Menachem Begin. What can we say about a man who will go down in history as the saddest and weakest of all prime ministers while at the same time continuing to reap the kudos and hurrahs of millions who make up his oylem Goilem? Had Shimon Peres given up the Sinai with its huge supplies of oils and land and knocked out Jewish settlements and dragged out Jews? Had Peres stopped the Israeli army in Lebanon from annihilating the PLO and its leadership? Begin and his groupies would have taken to the streets calling for the head of the traitor. But since it was Begin who did it, the goylem accepts it as the decision forced upon him. What an oilem. What a goylem. Donkeys' asses are programmed in their limitations. They cannot see. They cannot grasp reality. Human donkeys are different. They can. But they are worse than the four-legged brand because they refuse to see and admit truth and reality. I'm going to read a little more. He talks about Sharon now. Remember, this is way before that Sharon dismantled Goose Katif, when he was considered the right-wing hawk. The rabbi writes like this, and Ariel Sharon, the latest hero of the masses, he's the hawk, he's the tough hero, he's the no-nonsense man, he's the salvation, masses, asses, oil him, goilem. And in the article, the rabbi goes on to explain how Ariel Sharon, as the minister of defense, the hawk, the hero, the salvation, he hovered over the area of Yemit in the Sinai, in his helicopter, and he directed the knocking down of Jewish settlements. And that created a precedent for Judea and Samaria as he dragged Jews out of their homes. If Perez had done that, what would the hawk have said? What would the hero have shouted? And the rabbi gives lots of other examples here, and I'll just read the end. I could go on, but hopefully the point is clear to that percentage of Jews that have risen above the olim goyim, who have achieved more than donkey status. Be honest, be truthful, and above all, cease being idol worshippers. Okay, so that's part of a piece that Rabbi Kahana wrote in the 80s, Oylem Goylem. I think the parallel is clear. So the parallel is clear, An atrocity committed by Bibi is just as bad as one committed by Gantz. But the point is, up until now, Bibi was able to fake it that he's the tough nationalist. Now he's exposed because nothing's holding him back. There's no leftists in his coalition holding him back. He's holding us back. It's his decision not to take the steps that must be taken to get this country back on track. But the oilem goylem, they'll keep propping him up on the pedestal as Bibi, king of Israel. Okay, let's move away from Israeli politics. Let's go on to American politics for a moment. Elan Omer, that congresswoman from Minnesota, the Muslim from Somalia, the open Jew hater and Israel basher. She's been ousted from the House Foreign Affairs Committee because she's not only a Jew hater, but she's a traitor to America as well. So the Republicans booted her off some of these committees. Speaker Kevin McCarthy described repeated anti-Semitic and anti-American remarks throughout her time as member of the House. So they passed the resolution and they got her kicked off. So a lot of Jews might be getting nachas from this. Hey, America's fixing itself up. But if you listen to Omar's speech afterwards, her influence is probably stronger than ever without being on that committee. She's a martyr now. She's a bigger hero than ever to her constituency. And what does it really matter to Jews that she's been booted off a committee? That doesn't reflect any diminishing of anti-Semitism. Opposite, the streets are with her. She keeps getting elected and so do the other members of the squad. So don't get too excited when a vicious anti-Semite gets called out or gets fired or some celebrity arises and defends the Jews somewhere. They don't represent anybody. What matters are what they're feeling in the streets. The same thing with the black community. Candace Owens and Thomas Sowell's doesn't speak for them. The average black sees Larry Elder or Candace Owens as sellouts. They're the biggest Uncle Toms around. And it's the streets that count. These mobs are going to be unleashed against us. As a corollary to the Yoma story, you just can't help but see how anti-Semitism is being normalized. I mean, it's just mainstream by celebrities and politicians. You had Joe Rogan's comment there, that Jews love money like Italians love pizza. You know, growing up in Queens, New York, I didn't experience much anti-Semitism, but I do remember in the schoolyards of my elementary school, every once in a while, you'd have these guys throwing pennies on the ground to see if the Jews will pick them up. So Joe Rogan is bringing us back to that minhag. But that's not the comment that should upset us. What's troubling is he doesn't condemn her for her anti-Israel views. She calls Israel a terrorist organization. She compares Israel and the U.S. to the Taliban and the Hamas. He's defending Elon Omar all the way and saying she should not apologize. And it's funny because people see Joe Rogan as this objective, open-minded guy. Because sometimes he's on the right side of the issue. Everybody says something normal once in a while. And when he does, Ben Shapiro loves to publicize it. But Rogan can't be too smart. I mean, he endorsed Bernie Sanders, for God's sakes. But it's comments like this that normalize anti-Semitism. It's so much easier to spouse anti-Semitism than it used to be. You know, people used to think that America was immune from it, that it's different from the other exiles. The only reason that you didn't have a lot of anti-Semitism in America is after the Holocaust, all the horrors, it created like a temporary embargo on Jew hatred in America. It was hard to be an anti-Semite after the Holocaust. You know, the stench of Auschwitz was still in the nostrils of America. So nobody's going to be an open Jew hater. So in that way, the American Jew, he benefited from the Holocaust because he got this temporary embargo on anti-Semitism. But then you had the incredible creation of the Jewish state with a new Jew who had military prowess and the new image was built up in the mind of the non-Jew. The Jew wasn't this weak victim of oppression in need of sympathy. He was now a fighter. He's an aggressor. The Six-Day War not only destroyed the Arab armies, it also laid to rest a lot of Christian guilt. Now they don't have to feel guilty about hating us anymore so they can attack Israel, that they're aggressors, that they're fascists. That's the new kind of anti-Semitism. So the grace of the Holocaust is worn off. So in the wheel of fortune of the Jew, as the wheel turns, yeah, we were on the top. It was good for a while, but it's begun to move in the other direction. So hopefully we'll wake up and as we see anti-Semitism being mainstreamed by celebrities and politicians at a terrifying pace, we'll understand that America is no different than any other exile. And to say so flies in the face of historical precedent. It has always happened to Jews in the past. And those who claim that America is different, well, the burden of proof is upon them to prove it because every exile up to now has imploded. Anyway, I said that the Holocaust brought upon Jews a certain grace period from anti-Semitism, but it's worn off. Well, listen to this. I saw something on Facebook which went kind of viral and it was a teacher in a black school, I think it was, and she was teaching history and she was educating the kids there about the Holocaust and she was shocked at their reaction. They were laughing. They were saying that Hitler was a great man, that the Holocaust never happened. Just a lot of kidding around and mocking and open Jew hatred. And again, this teacher was really upset. I don't even know if she was Jewish or not. Now, I'm saying this because I'm sure this is typical. It's not not a one-time thing. I bet that most Gentiles are kind of sick of hearing about it. And I think we should stop shoving the Holocaust in people's faces. Look, look, look what they did to us. Poor Jews, always hoping that the world will pity us. And then there's a movie that came out, You People, with Jonah Hill and Eddie Murphy. And Jews are upset about that because it minimizes the Holocaust, makes jokes about it. I get it. But there's also something not normal that the Jews focus so much on the Holocaust. It's like that's where they get their identity from. It's not normal that you get your Jewish identity from the Holocaust. That's not a good way to instill Jewish pride. How about instead of studying the Holocaust all day, we study the story of David and Goliath or victories of Jews over their enemies in the Tanakh or battles that the children of Israel won against this nation and that nation, how the Maccabees crushed the Greeks, you know, a little Jewish pride. If the Holocaust is the main thing that makes you Jewish, you're going to have a problem. I'd rather have it stay between us Jews more and not flaunt it too much, bringing everybody to Yad Vashem, and every Jew has to go to Yad Vashem first. That's the highlight of his trip. Why not go to other places, like, like the location where David slew Goliath? Or where Yonatan and his arms bearer attacked the Philistines in Michmash. It's not healthy to grow up on Holocaust stories and that's your identity as a Jew. Obviously, it's better than nothing. If a Jew becomes a better Jew because of that and the Holocaust teaches him that I'm not going to give up my Judaism because six million died. For sure, that's positive And I'm sure a lot of people think that way. But that shouldn't be your fallback. And that shouldn't be the way that we present ourselves to the world, to the nations. We should not be trying to show the nations how persecuted we are. A normal people doesn't look for pity. They look for respect. You know, in Parsha Yitro, we just read a few days ago, and Yitro was the first convert to Judaism. And what impressed him? What impressed Yitro that made him a convert? What made him want to join the Jewish people? You see from the opening verse of the Parsha, and Yitro heard, what did he hear? So Rashi says there right off the bat, he heard about Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the Red Sea, and the war against Amalek. That's what impressed Yitro, that we defeated Amalek in a war. The fact that Hashem did all these miracles for us, we were pretty passive during all that, but that we fought Amalek, we did something, that impressed them. So if you want the nations to be impressed by Am Yisrael, it's not by getting beat up and showing them the Holocaust, but when we beat up the other guy, to see Jewish strength and Jewish power, and that's how you want to portray yourself, not as a victim all the time. That is not a good look. Now, getting back to our Parsha that we read a couple of days ago, Parsha Yitro, I want to talk about the subject of unity. We read Parsha Yitro. It's the Pasha of Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. We read the Ten Commandments. And a famous verse in Parsha Yitro is Vayechan Elahar. says the people camped at the mountain. That is right before receiving the Torah, Vayechan Elahar, they camped at the mountain, at Mount Sinai. And Rashi pays attention that it's in the singular. It should say, They camped at the mountain, but it's in singular, as if one person is at the mountain and not all the Jewish people. So Rashi says, One man, one heart. That is the Jewish people upon receiving the Torah were unified, one man and one heart. And rabbis and speakers love to use this verse to talk about the importance of unity that it's important to be unified, but here it is, we're unified, and with that we merited to receive the Torah. Unity is a wonderful thing. But the thing is, talking about unity in a generic sense, what do you mean unity? Unity has to be around something. Unity for what? In this situation, they were unified to receive the Torah. That's a good unity. Some people are unified around their baseball team and they have camaraderie. That's a certain kind of unity. It would be nice to be unified around some loftier goals But it's got to be around something. There's no unity in a vacuum. I'll give you an example of something just this past week. Joe Biden is always calling the Republicans or the MAGA Republicans semi-fascists. And then in his State of the Union address, he declares, there's no reason why we can't work together. You see the emptiness of the message? So when you see these demonstrations of the left against this government, their vicious remarks about this right-wing government, violence in their eyes, in their mouth, Against the judicial reforms, and we cry, There's no unity in Amisrael. We have to unify. That's our strength. Yeah, but around what? Around what issue? There's no unity with them. you got to beat them, because if they win, we're dead. So to say that the Jewish people have to have unity, that's a slogan. You have to be unified around something. We would hope that it would be unity around positive goals, like receiving the Torah and Harsane, Vayachana Lahar. That's a good kind of unity. On the other hand, you have a bad unity, unity of Rishayim, the unity of the wicked, like in the Tower of Babel. They were unified and Hashem had to nullify their plans and spread them out because it was unity around evil. And that's why the Mishnah says, Kinu tov tov lo olam, that when the righteous get together, it's good for them and it's good for the world. But when the evil get together and they're unified, it's bad for them and it's bad for the world. Because of course, unity is strength. But if it's unity around something bad, that gives the bad more strength. In the days of the Maccabees, should we have been unified around Hellenism? We celebrate the Maccabees who fought the Hellenists. That wasn't unity. That was divisiveness. But we needed it. It says that in the days of Ahab, who was a wicked king, when he went out to war, no Jews fell in war. Even though they were idol worshippers. no Jews fell in war. Why? Because there were no informers in his day. Nobody informed to Jezebel about the prophets who were hiding in a cave. On the other hand, in the days of Saul, who was a righteous king, much more than Ahab was, people died in wars. Why? There were informers constantly running to Saul and informing where David is so Saul could chase him down. Now people misinterpret that Talmud many times and they say, wow, in the days of Ahab, they were idol worshipers, but they were united and therefore nobody fell in the wars. But, But the Talmud's not saying they were united around idol worship. They were united around the good thing, that they weren't stinkers, and they didn't reveal to Jezebel where the prophets were hiding. The unity was a positive unity. If they had been united around idol worship, Hashem would punish them. He wouldn't reward them. So I hope we got that straight. And so when you hear calls for unity amongst leaders and rabbis, you have to ask, around what? May it be Hashem's will that we unify around the Torah, as the Jews did at Mount Sinai. by al Let's unify around that. I'm looking at a headline in today's Jerusalem Post where Abe Foxman, the American Jewish leader, he says that Jewish organizations should avoid Smotrich and Ben Gvir. So the American Jewish establishment loves to talk about democracy, democracy, and then when the Jewish people elect their leaders according to their rules of democracy, suddenly you got to avoid them. Why? Because this isn't the Israel they dreamed of. In their liberal American minds, Israel's got to be a certain way, and if it's not, we got to avoid them. If Israel isn't in the image that they want, then they have no problem throwing Israel under the bus. Every week, Jews are murdered in Israel, and what's bothering these leaders in the diaspora is Smotrich and Ben-Gvir. And I want to say one final word about this word diaspora. I can't stand the word. What's the diaspora? That's a mealy-mouthed word. The word was always exile, the galut. The Gullus, the word diaspora somehow justifies the fact that the Jews are out there. When you say the word exile, you realize it's not the place you're supposed to be. Like Adam and Eve were exiled from Gan Eden. It was a punishment. So when you say the word diaspora instead of exile, somehow it's okay now that the Jews are out of Israel. It's not a punishment anymore. The Jews are out of Israel. Now they're in the diaspora. They're not in the exile. As long as you have these nice cozy words, everything's okay. What sounds more urgent? Jew, Get out of the exile, or Jew, get out of the diaspora. Moving on, one more thing before signing off. This is the health segment of the podcast. Every once in a while, I bring up the issue of good health and eating properly because I know from my experience how important it is. I used to just eat whatever I wanted, you know, Doritos and seven up, whatever tasted good. But when you get older, you start to pay the price. The pipes aren't like they used to be. You can't just eat what you want. And it feels so much better to eat healthy, be lighter on your feet. When your body feels right, your soul can shine. You're not preoccupied with nagging physical ailments. Nothing tastes as good as healthy feels. I'll say that one more time, think about this. Nothing tastes as good as healthy feels. So if you want to put something in your mouth and you know it's not good for you, just remember how good healthy feels. And you don't have to eat so much until you're full. Stop before you're full. It's good for your self-discipline. And I want to refer to a verse we read in last week's Pasha, which I think enlightens us about the subject of health and keeping good health. At the end of Pasha B'Shalach, it says, I am the Lord who heals you. Or you could say, I am the Lord your doctor. What does it mean? I am the Lord, your doctor that heals you. So Rashid is like this. shem is like a physician who says to the patient, Don't eat this thing because it may make you sick. That's what a doctor is. That's what healing is. Don't eat this. Preventive health. Don't eat this. It's going to make you sick. That's what a physician should be. He tells you what not to eat. He tells you what not to do so you don't get sick in the first place. Don't eat all this junk and then later on you go to the doctor. Hashem, who's the real physician, is telling you what to eat and what not to eat so you don't have to go to the doctor in the first place. That's called preventive medicine. So remember that Rashi, when you see the verse, I am the Lord, your doctor. Okay, that's it for me. Don't forget, if you want to hear more of me, you can tune into Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes if you want to get a real good shior on the Tanakh, the Book of Kings, the Book of Shmuel, Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. It's a podcast on Anchor. It's a podcast on Spotify. Tune in to get an authentic look at the Tanakh, how a normal Jew is supposed to behave in the land of Israel before exile. You can check that out. Thanks for joining me. God willing, I'll be back next week for more.